You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Yeah. Yes, sir. Because Henry's preparing, I don't want to bother him, but put this thought to him. Uh, a major point that I know has to be covered is this thing about the election thing, you know. Oh, absolutely. And uh, apparently that didn't get across. Did, any other, no, get well, a, there wasn't a good audience for that, but guys, we can hit. You had too mixed a, a group in there to make the point that they were all timetable working on them. That's right. That's the time. But I would put it, you've got to put it in words people understand. Say, our interest is the right kind of peace, a peace that will last. Not the kind of peace we had after, we've been around this track in 1962 in the settlement on Laos. Did he make that point? Yes. Well, he said yes. That you had given him instructions. That... Yeah, but I mean, but let me make the point to you. In Laos, we had a settlement. It was a, but however, it led to just a continued war. Time we want a peace that will last. In other words, peace that will last. He said. Yeah, and then you could say that what 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 the president says. Our interest is not peace for the next election, but peace for the next generation. Right. So just want to use that phrase. Good. Okay. Fine, Mr. President. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. Now we're in the closing days of this election and negotiations with the North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese uh, trying to get ourselves out of the war are very tense at this moment as we're trying to get this to come together, all while the American people are looking and making up their mind. But at this point, Nixon's lead is insurmountable. You said that you would try to stop the war. Absolutely. Tell me, what is going to become of the prisoners of war over there? That's the only way you're ever going to see them, is to end That's the war. Right. But if you stop it before you bring them home, then what? You never in history have got prisoners out while a war was on. This is where the president has tricked us. And that's why the wives of a lot of those prisoners are out campaigning for me, because they know they'll never see their husbands if we keep this war going. There's never been an exception to that in modern history. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that we're bombing North Vietnam so they'll release the prisoners. They're never going to release the prisoners as long as they're bombed. They're not going to release them as long as we're backing General Two. We can have General Two or we can get our prisoners out, but we can't have both. And I think we've done enough for him. McGovern, right from the start. Mr. Brown, why are you endorsing President Nixon? Well, I'm endorsing President Nixon because, because I believe in the future of the country lies with uh, uh, Mr. Nixon, and I feel here that, uh, that uh, some of the things he's done has, has been very close to my heart as a minority, as a black man. Sickle cell is one of the things, and I had a pledge of visit with some of my friends uh, out of his cabinet, Mr. Robert Brown and also Mr. Jones, and I was treated well here, and I see that they are not only just there for figureheads, but they're there with authority. They can do things, which made me feel very good, because I've been here before, and it went that way. Then I, then I know it, and my heart lies with education. This is one of my first approaches to trying to do something abroad, other than sing and dance on the stage. And uh, I know that he is helping the, the private black colleges so we can maintain our culture as well as get an education. These are things that I'm very, very well, uh, well, feel very close to me. Then most of all, last but not least, I'm a countryman. 
and I feel that you don't quit a boat in the middle of a stream. So are you saying that you're Republican or Democrat, sir? I'm saying that I'm countryman, and I'm endorsing the country, and I feel that my best way of endorsing the country is to come and endorse Mr. Nixon because I feel that he's a man for the job, and I feel that he knows more about what, we, what we're into now and what we're involved in as far as here and abroad. Hello? Doc. Yes, Mr. President. Hello. Hello, Mr. President. Hi, Henry. How are you? Okay. Hope you got a good night's sleep. You I, deserved it. Yeah, I really feel a lot better. I was, yesterday was beginning to catch up on me. Ah, well. You, I it, it didn't show, didn't show. Where are you? I'm at home. Good, I'm, good. I'm, Stay I'm there. Coming in in a little. Uh, yeah, we've worked it out, you know. I'm going to do a little briefing, and uh, I've just talked to Haig and the line to take, and uh, we got it all worked out, and it's best that you not do it. We, I think it we don't want to use the big gun until it's time. Well, I think the advantage is if the, uh, if the other side breaks off this week, if there is a 20% chance that they may. I don't, I'd say 10, but go ahead. Oh, yeah, 10, I agree with you. I probably should step out again and start right. slamming them, and then it's better that it's a non-political. Absolutely. Good, good. He likes the settlement, doesn't he? Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Well, you know, these little bastards in the press are not trying to show that this thing is a coalition government. Yeah, uh, well, are we getting that knocked down enough? I don't know. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to hit it hard today myself. Agnew is hitting it. And I've just got through talking to him. And uh, if you can get Buckley to hit it and some of the right wing, like right. Uh, Jim Buckley, Bill Buckley, Bill Buckley Joe, got Joe Alsop. Uh, got him lined up. Joe Alsop, if he could hit it, it'd be helpful. And, and uh, Dick Wilson, those are the ones, basically. That, so the right says that it's not a coalition. That's all we need. The assholes that are saying it's coalition are our enemies. And they're our enemies, and they're dying. I mean, here is a committee voting by unanimity, having as its functions to preserve the ceasefire and to supervise elections. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, no police, no courts, no army. And if you compare when they proposed the coalition government, it was supposed to have full powers. That's right. I'm going to get Hague to make that clear. Good. I'm going to call them. Well, as far as the assholes in the press, I don't think that's seeping in too much yet, do you? No. no. I. It's it's more of the writing kind of jackasses like I crafts and those television guys. television last night, and they are mm-hmm. uh, they're basically wiped out. I'm nickling away at the periphery, nobody really gives a damn yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Well, the main we thing, haven't heard from Hanoi yet, so I know they, that. they might be getting tougher this week, but... All right, let them get tougher, and then we'll be tougher, too. That's what I think. I think we... Uh, uh, say that we're going to make... Uh, we want the right kind of a settlement. It isn't just ending a war. We've ended wars before. We want to win the peace. I would actually, I think, we are better off if they don't meet this week because then yeah. they won't have the cameras at Andrews right. asking that you get an agreement. But I've already put it out to the press that even if there is a meeting this week, will only that after that it will, if, assuming it succeeds, it will still take two or three weeks. Right. Good. Okay. I'm Charlton Haston. I'd like to talk to you about the presidential election. I voted for the Democratic candidate in every election I've taken part in, until now. This year, I'm supporting President Nixon. Seems to me this election is a lot more than a simple choice between two men or two parties. It's a choice between Senator McGovern's plan to walk out of Vietnam now or the president's plan to make sure of the release of our prisoners first. It's a choice between the senator's radical tax and welfare schemes or continuing the economic growth of the past four years. It's a choice between the senator's plan to cut our military budget to the point where we become a second-class power or keeping this country as strong as it needs to be. With these choices, you can't just sit this election out. Every one of us had better get out and vote, or we just might get outvoted. November 7th at the polls, rain or shine. Be there, won't you? One of the reasons I'm disturbed about the president's $10 million secret election fund is that it indicates there's something there he's afraid to disclose. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what are they hiding? That I'm perfectly willing to publish the name of every dollar contributed to my campaign 
And I don't see what the president is covering up. But it's that kind of thing that puts a kind of a damper on the moral tone of the whole nation. McGovern, Democrat, for the people. Hello, Mr. President. Hi, Henry. What are your morning report today? <laughs> we got uh, a message uh, that the North Vietnamese will have a message to deliver to us about 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> we don't know what it is. Well, the only reason I called, or Ehrlichman called up here, uh, saying that uh, uh, getting, got the impression you said everything had been was going to blow up tomorrow, and that we had to be prepared to want me to make a speech in Chicago, and I'm, I just I wanted to, I just want to be sure that I know about it, see? I told you that he, he tends to get a little excited, but I just... No, I said there are three possibilities. Right. One is that they'll accept another meeting. Yep. The other that they'll stall, and the third that they'll go into a posture in which they go for all the marbles and say they'll break off the talk. Right. Right. That I didn't consider the last one very possible. But well, that's the one. That's the one that he got excited about, Henry. Apparently, yeah. that it's worthwhile to think about. Sure, sure, sure. Well, they might. They might. But if they do it, Mr. President, I still believe that we'll be in a position uh, to capitalize on it because we can. Stick what would we uh, be done? We can what you say? I think we can still capitalize on it because our position would be that we are willing to sign a good agreement. We're not willing to sign an agreement that uh, is unsatisfactory. Right. I think, well, as a matter of fact, I think that on the merits, I think we're, we can capitalize on it. We, the only problem we have to be aware of, and it's not going to be fatal, but it'll hurt some, is that people's expectations have been built up, not by us, but by the media. And that uh, as a result, they will, those expectations will be rather severely shocked. Well, but we can take care of that. But we'll say that they're just trying to blackmail us, and we maintain our position. I don't think it's going to happen. But what I think is important, and I'm preparing some talking points for you, Mr. President, is that we don't create so much euphoria that our negotiating position gets blown, that the other side knows we cannot afford these talks to break down after the election. I try. I try. And therefore, I think that, that the theme that you had been stressing, that significant progress has been made. Because, well, you see, that's all I have said, but I don't know whether others may be going a little beyond that because others are going beyond it but i would do it strongly that you don't go well that's in fact in fact the only thing i've i've said either place you know is just that we have made progress and that's that but and, that, uh, I, i'm preparing some talking points but i'm not sure i want to say much more than that than that progress unless they break off that's right i think this is a significant progress has been made but we will not sign anything i would hit that until all its provisions are right right I think that's good. Well, of course, the point is that uh, would it, uh, are they are you planning to what about the idea of having Rogers go out today and hit that point? Well, I think the trouble with Rogers going out today is while that message is in transit, I, I really don't yeah. think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. He can go out tomorrow when we know what he Of course, it's quite interesting that McGovern would uh, make the position, make the statement that
what they may do to absurd days, walk out of the talk saying there's no other, nothing else to talk about except the agreement. They won't break the agreement. They'll just say they'll refuse to renegotiate it. We right. still maintain the position that it was never completed, and we insist that it be Well, I'm perfectly happy to put out anything like tomorrow. In fact, I would, it would be good to have something in Chicago that I could say that would make news to the effect that we are that we are ready to make an agreement. I mean, we'll have to wait to see what they say today. But the most important thing is the right agreement, and uh, and uh, we're not going to make a bad agreement simply because of the time. I think you should say that, Mr. President, because if after the election they stole us, yeah. I think we ought to back them. Yeah. And in fact, with you, I wanted to call you. I, I want to have a meeting today with the military. Right. Get them to go all out until there is a ceasefire so that we whittle down their forces as much as possible. Of course. Of course. Well, maybe I ought to get back there and, and uh, ream them out a little. Less. I, I'm, I'm trying to finish these three speeches, but uh, no, no, they don't, they don't the matter. order isn't here. I, there's no need for you to do it, uh, but you might want to do it when the order is back. Yeah. Well, no, I'll be back tonight, but I meant, you see, I'm finishing these speeches for the... Uh, I have three more speeches to do before the before. Uh, I, I don't think there's any need to do it, Mr. President, today. I think Wednesday is time enough. Well, I would like to be able to to make a good, not long, three or four minutes in Chicago, where I hit straight out as to what this thing is. Now, as I've been saying privately, this, but I have never said it publicly yet. This idea that we will not make that the most important thing is to make the right kind of agreement, not just to end the war, but to end the war in a way that we'll build a peace and so forth. That's what I would say tomorrow. Yeah. And I'd say we have made a major breakthrough. I'd use the term major breakthrough. I mean, that's as far as I've gone. Achieve this, uh, but we will not sign it, and we will not do it until uh, we have uh, the right agreement. That's right. What we want now is to have, we don't want just a temporary peace, we want a permanent peace. Oh, yeah. Well, I can I can hit that thing very well. It's probably better for me to go out first then rather than have Rogers go out. I think it's better. Because I will know exactly what to say. And it also has you in the strong position, which is where your natural allies are. Yeah. In these goddamn liberals, I absolutely die. You think so? <laughs> I was at a dinner last night and Clayton said she was in tears. He said, we can't let you go. You'll prove what Johnson did was right. We can't submit it. There's got to be an investigation right afterwards. He said that? Yeah. He really meant it? Oh, yeah. What's he mean? That uh, <coughs> succeed in what? The president succeed. It can't be a success. Because whatever happens, it can't be a success. Yeah. Well, they're dying, too, because of the election, aren't they? Oh, yeah. They had this fellow Apple from the New York Times was at this dinner. Oh, yes. And uh, he said, uh, this is, he could say, you know, it's an all out government. He said, he wishes he could say there was doctors in the government. But he, there's no way that the Apple can see him coming close in seven of the ten major states. He's not going to come close in any of them. Yeah, but, you know, I can assure you. But Apple, Apple, of course, the total government government supporter. Yeah. Yeah. Let him, let, let him scream. Well, fine. Then uh, you will, uh, you then will uh, let me know at two o'clock. Or, uh, I'll let you know as soon as we have the message. It's more likely to be three. Oh, sure, of course. Picked up at two. Well, I'll stay here in any event till then. By the time he gets back to the uh, yeah. phone, it will be. Yeah. Stay here till three o'clock. Now, is it your view then that Roger should not go out today? to force us into an agreement 
which would be only a temporary truce and not a lasting peace. We are going to sign the agreement when the agreement is right, not one day before. And when the agreement is right, we are going to sign without one day's delay. The president also said of domestic programs that if the size of the federal government continued to increase as it had in the past 40 years, the result would be catastrophic. And Mr. Nixon claimed that if the spending programs proposed by Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern were made law, they would require a 50% federal tax increase. Campaigning in Jackson, Michigan, Senator McGovern said of the president's stand on the Vietnam tentative settlement. Judging from what the president uh, said tonight, it appears that their uh, efforts at a negotiated settlement are falling apart. Apparently, General Tu in Saigon doesn't like the shape of the uh, proposed settlement. There's some indication that maybe uh, Mr. Nixon is having second thoughts about it. But in any event, as one who has opposed this war now for more than nine years, I want you to understand that uh, when you make your judgment on Tuesday about how you're going to vote, that I'm fully committed to a 90-day orderly withdrawal of all American troops and prisoners of war if I'm elected president of the United States. News and detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. President Nixon's top security advisor, Dr. Henry Kissinger, who was supposed to have flown home from Paris tonight after an unprecedented three days of secret talks with the communist negotiators in Paris, unexpectedly extended his stay for further secret negotiations on peace in Vietnam. WOR's Clifford Evans reports. The White House again says no comment. But the fact is that when Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Tho had met 17 times between 1969 and earlier this year, each time they met for only a matter of hours. Two weeks ago, they met for two days, and now they have agreed to a fourth day of negotiations in Paris. Kissinger and Le Duc Tho do not make small talk. From all indications, they appear to have broken through and found common ground in their efforts and the war in Vietnam. We now wait for a further word from the White House from Paris. Clifford Evans, Washington correspondent, WOR News. Meanwhile, South Vietnam's Foreign Minister Tran Van Lam told newsmen in Saigon that the talks between Kissinger and the North Vietnamese in Paris are at what he called an extremely serious stage. He asked commentators and observers not to make speculations which could cause difficulty in the negotiations, even as President Chu is meeting with United States Ambassador Ellsworth Bunker for their third such meeting in less than a week. Van Lam said the position of his government is, and we quote, we are prepared to discuss the ceasefire with the North Vietnamese at any time whatsoever and at any place. With the presidential elections only four days away, the Indochina War still figures largely in the campaign, Harrison Salisbury, the op-edge page editor of the New York Times, addressed a meeting of the Overseas Press Club in Manhattan tonight. WR's John Scott reminded him that some Democrats are charging that the current visit of Dr. Kissinger to Paris, the secret talks with the communists, is merely a political trick. Scott asked Salisbury his feeling on the subject, and Salisbury replied... Well, I doubt that it's a political move per se. I think that uh, Dr. Kissinger and the president have been working very hard to try and come up with a solution on Vietnam before the election. Now, there may be some political uh, uh, payoff in that, but I, they've been working at this for a long, long time. So I don't see this as, as politics. On the other hand, I really don't see much chance that they're going to be able to come up with something because these negotiations can always are wrecked on the rock of Chu. We're backing Chu. Chu is not going to go away. He's not going to give up in the South. I think President Nixon in his first term has done an absolutely fantastic job. And he's getting our boys out of Vietnam, and that's very important. Very important to me. President Nixon uh, did exactly what he said he was going to do. He's turned the economy around. I certainly do approve of President Nixon's going to Peking. Without a doubt, Mr. Nixon should be re-elected. I like him. You better believe it. I am going to vote for President Nixon. America needs President Nixon, and he needs you. Re-elect the president. This is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith. He's got the news. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. A final Gallup poll on the presidential election puts President Nixon 
ahead of Senator George McGovern by 61 to 35 percent. That poll was taken from last Thursday through Saturday. The Gallup organization used the word landslide. President Nixon made a brief election eve appearance on television tonight. His speech ran only 13 paragraphs and dealt mainly with the Vietnam War. And he said, as you know, we have made a breakthrough in the negotiations which will lead to peace in Vietnam. We have agreed that there will be a ceasefire. We have agreed that all of our prisoners of war will be returned and the missing in action will be accounted for. And we have agreed that the people of South Vietnam will determine their own future and not have a communist government or a coalition government opposed upon them against their will. There are some details that we insisting still be worked out. We insist because we want to be sure that this will be not simply a temporary peace, but a peace that will last. And he added, I'm completely confident that we will soon reach an agreement which will end the war in Vietnam. If landslide is the going word, you can't sell it to Senator McGovern. All day, wherever he campaigned, and he covered four states from New York to California, he used the same expression, I think we are going to prevail. In all his speeches today, McGovern emphasized four points, an end to the war, an end to inflation, a job for every worker, and a better tax break for the average citizen. Here in New York, the polls open at 6 a.m., will close at 9 p.m. In New Jersey, the voting hours, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., WR Radio will start its continuous election coverage at 8 p.m. and will provide returns continuously until all of the major contests are decided on all levels, national, state, and local. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. In this house, every president since John Adams has lived and worked and set the course for America's future. It was here that Richard Nixon planned his historic journeys to Peking and Moscow, and he is here tonight to speak to the American people. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening. I am speaking to you tonight from the library of the White House. This room, like all the rooms in this great house, is rich in history. Often late at night, I sit here thinking of the crises other presidents have known and of the trials that other generations of Americans have come through. I think, too, of the presidents who will be sitting here a generation from now and of how they will look back on these years. And I think of what I want to accomplish in these years. I would like to share some of those thoughts with you this evening. Above all, I want to complete the foundations for a world of peace so that the next generation can be the first in this century to live without war and without the fear of war. Beyond this, I want Americans, all Americans, to see more clearly and to feel more deeply what it is 
that makes this nation of ours unique in history, unique in the world, a nation in which the soul and spirit are free, in which each person is respected, in which the individual human being, each precious, each different, can dare to dream and can live his dreams. I want progress toward a better life for all Americans, not only in terms of better schools, greater abundance, a cleaner environment, better homes, more attractive communities, but also in a spiritual sense, in terms of greater satisfaction, more kindness in our relations with each other, more fulfillment. I want each American, all Americans, to find a new zest in the pursuit of excellence, in striving to do their best and to be their best, in learning the supreme satisfaction of setting a seemingly impossible goal and meeting or surpassing that goal, of finding in themselves that extra reserve of energy or talent or creativity that they had not known was there. These are goals of a free people in a free nation, a nation that lives not by handout, not by dependence on others, or in hostage to the whims of others, but proud and independent. A nation of individuals with self-respect and with the right and capacity to make their own choices, to chart their own lives. That is why I want us to turn away from a demeaning, demoralizing dependence on someone else to make our decisions and to guide the course of our lives. That is why I want us to turn toward a renaissance of the individual spirit, toward a new vitality of those governments closest to the people, toward a new pride of place for the family and the community, toward a new sense of responsibility in all that we do, responsibility for ourselves and to ourselves, for our communities and to our communities knowing that each of us, in every act of his daily life, determines what kind of community and what kind of a country we all will live in. If together we can restore this spirit, then four years from now, America can enter its third century buoyant and vital and young, with all the purpose that marked its beginning two centuries ago. In these past four years, we have moved America significantly toward this goal. We have restored peace at home, and we are restoring peace abroad. As you know, we have now made a major breakthrough toward achieving our goal of peace with honor in Vietnam. We have reached substantial agreement on most of the terms of a settlement. The settlement we are ready to conclude would accomplish the basic objectives that I laid down in my television speech to the nation on May 8th of this year. The return of all of our prisoners of war and an accounting for all of those missing in action. A ceasefire throughout Indochina. And for the 17 million people of South Vietnam, the right to determine their own future without having a communist government or a coalition government imposed upon them against their will. However, there are still some issues to be resolved. There are still some provisions of the agreement which must be clarified so that all ambiguities will be removed. I have insisted that these be settled before we sign the final agreement. That is why we refuse to be stampeded into meeting the arbitrary deadline of October 31st. Now there are some who say, why worry about the details? Just get the war over. Well, my answer is this. My study of history convinces me that the details can make the difference 
between an agreement that collapses and an agreement that lasts. And equally crucial is a clear understanding by all of the parties of what those details are. We are not going to repeat the mistake of 1968 when the bombing halt agreement was rushed into just before an election without pinning down the details. We want peace, peace with honor, a peace fair to all, and a peace that will last. That is why I am insisting that the central points be clearly settled so that there will be no misunderstandings which could lead to a breakdown of the settlement and a resumption of the war. I am confident that we will soon achieve that goal. But we are not going to allow an election deadline or any other kind of deadline to force us into an agreement which would be only a temporary truce and not a lasting peace. We are going to sign the agreement when the agreement is right, not one day before. And when the agreement is right, we are going to sign without one day's delay. Not only in America, but all around the world, people will be watching the results of our election. The leaders in Hanoi will be watching. They will be watching for the answer of the American people, for your answer to this question. Shall we have peace with honor or peace with surrender? Always in the past, you have answered peace with honor. By giving that same answer once again on November the 7th, you can help make certain that peace with honor can now be achieved. In these past four years, we have also been moving toward lasting peace in the world at large. We have signed more agreements with the Soviet Union than were negotiated in all the previous years since World War II. We have established the basis for a new relationship with the People's Republic of China, where one-fourth of all the people in this world live. Our vigorous diplomacy has advanced the prospects for a stable peace in the Middle East. All around the world, we are opening doors to peace, doors that were previously closed. We are developing areas of common interest where there have been previously only antagonisms. All this is a beginning. It can be the beginning of a generation of peace of a world in which our children can be the first generation in this century to escape the scourge of war. These next four years will set the course on which we begin our third century as a nation. What will that course be? Will it have us turning inward, retreating from the responsibilities not only of a great power but of a great people, of a nation that embodies the ideals man has dreamed of and fought for through the centuries? We cannot retreat from those responsibilities. If we did, America would cease to be a great nation, and peace and freedom would be in deadly jeopardy throughout the world. Ours is a great and a free nation today, because past generations of Americans met their responsibilities, and we shall meet ours. We have made progress toward peace in the world, toward a new relationship with the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, not through naive, sentimental assumptions that goodwill is all that matters, or that we can reduce our military strength because we have no intention of making war, and we therefore assume other nations would have no such intention. We have achieved progress through peace for precisely the opposite reasons. Because we demonstrated that we would not let ourselves be surpassed in military strength. And because we bargained 
with other nations on the basis of their national interests and ours. As we look at the real world, it is clear that we will not in our lifetimes have a world free of danger. Anyone who reads history knows that danger has always been part of the common lot of mankind. And anyone who knows the world today knows that nations have not all been suddenly overtaken by some new and unprecedented wave of pure goodwill and benign intentions. But we can lessen the danger. We can contain it. We can forge a network of relationships and of interdependencies that restrain aggression and that take the profit out of war. We cannot make all nations the same, and it would be wrong to try. We cannot make all of the world's people love each other, but we can establish conditions in which they will be more likely to live in peace with one another. Tonight, I ask for your support as we continue to work toward that great goal. Here at home, as we look at the progress we have made, we find that we are reaching new levels of prosperity. We have cut inflation almost in half. The average worker has scored his best gains in eight years in real spendable earnings. We are creating record numbers of new jobs. We are well on the way to achieving what America has not had since President Eisenhower lived here in the White House. Prosperity with full employment, without inflation, and without war. We have lowered the level of violence, and we are finally turning the tide against crime. I could go on with what we have done for the environment, for the consumer, for the aging, for the farmer, for the worker, for all Americans. But now, we must not look backward to what we have done in the past, but forward to what we will do in the future. It is traditional for a candidate for election to make all sorts of promises about bold new programs he intends to introduce if elected. This year's presidential campaign is probably established an all-time record for promises of huge new spending programs for just about anything and everything for everybody imaginable. I have not made such promises in this campaign, and I'm not going to do so tonight. Let me tell you why. In the first place, the sort of bold new programs traditionally promised by candidates are all programs that you the taxpayer pay for it. The programs proposed by our opponents in this campaign would require a 50% increase in federal taxes, in your taxes. I think your taxes are already too high. And that is why I oppose any new program which would add to your tax burden. In the second place, too many campaign promises are just that campaign promises. I believe in keeping the promises I make and making only those promises I am confident I can keep. I have promised that I will do all in my power to avoid the need for new taxes. And I am not going to promise anything else in the way of new programs that would violate that pledge. In the third place, my own philosophy of government is not one that looks to new federal dollars, your dollars, as the solution of every social problem. I have often said that America became great not because of what government did for people, but because of what people did for themselves. I believe government should free the energies of people to build for themselves and their communities. It should open opportunities, provide incentives, encourage initiative, not stifle initiative by trying to direct everything from Washington. This does not mean that the federal government will abdicate its responsibilities 
where only it can solve a problem. It does mean that after 40 years of unprecedented expansion of the federal government, the time has come to redress the balance, to shift more people and more responsibility and power back to the states and localities, and most important, to the people all across America. In the past 40 years, the size of the federal budget has grown from four and six-tenths billion dollars to $250 billion. In that same period, the number of civilian employees of the federal government has increased from 600,000 to 2,800,000. And in just the past 10 years, the number of federal grant and aid program has increased from 160 to more than 1,000. If this kind of growth were projected indefinitely into the future, the result would be catastrophic. We would have an America top-heavy with bureaucratic meddling, weighted down by big government, suffocated by taxes, robbed of its soul. We must not and we will not let this happen to America. That is why I oppose the unrestrained growth of big government in Washington. That is why one of my first priorities in the next four years will be to encourage a rebirth and renewal of state and local government. That is why I believe in giving the people in every community a greater say in those decisions that most directly affect the course of their daily lives. Now there will be those who will call this negative, who call it a retreat from federal responsibilities. I call it affirmative, an affirmation of faith in the people, faith in the individual, faith in each person's ability to choose wisely for himself and for his community. I call it an affirmation of faith in those principles that make America great, that tamed a con continent, that transformed a wilderness into the greatest and strongest and freest nation in the world. We have not changed. The American people have not grown weak. What has grown weak is government's faith in people. I am determined to see that faith restored. I am also determined to see another kind of faith restored and strengthened in America. I speak of the religious faith, the moral and spiritual values that have been so basically a part of our American experience. Man does not live for himself alone, and the strength of our character, the strength of our faith, the strength of our ideals, these have been the strength of America. When I think of what America means, I think of all the hope that lies in a vast continent, of great cities and small towns, of factories and farms, of a greater abundance more widely shared than the world has ever known, of a constant striving to set right the wrongs that still persist. And I think of 210 million people of all ages, all persuasions, all races, all stations in life. More particularly, I think of one person, one child, any child. That child may be black or brown or white, rich or poor. A boy whose family came here in steerage in 1920 or a girl whose ancestors came on the Mayflower in 1620. That one child is America, with a life still ahead, with his eyes filled with dreams, and with the birthright of every American child to a full and equal opportunity to pursue those dreams. It is for that one child that I want a world of peace and a chance to achieve all that peace makes possible. It is for that one child 
that I want opportunity and freedom and abundance. It is for that one child that I want a land of justice and order and a decent respect for the rights and the feelings of others. It is for that one child that I want it said a generation from now, a century from now, that America in the 1970s had the courage and the vision to meet its responsibilities and to face up to its challenges, to build peace, not merely for our generation, but for the next generation, to restore the land, to marshal our resources, not merely for our generation, but for the next generation, to guard our values and renew our spirit, not merely for our generation, but for the next generation. It is for that one child that I want these next four years to be the best four years in the whole history of America. The glory of this time in our history is that we can do more than ever before. We have the means, we have the skills, we have an increasing understanding of how the great goals that we seek can be achieved. These are not partisan goals. They are America's goals. That is why I ask you tonight, regardless of party, to join the new American majority next Tuesday in voting for candidates who stand for these goals. That is why I ask for your support after the election in helping to move forward toward these goals over the next four years. If we succeed in this task, then that one child, all of our children, can look forward to a life more full of hope, promise, than any generation in any land in the whole history of mankind. Thank you and good evening. The 1972 campaign had now comes to an end. The next night is election night. But I want to fast forward now about 30 years to the Nixon Presidential Library oral histories with one with George McGovern because 30 years down the road you can say what you really think and it's interesting as hard fought as this was what's common about a generation of Americans who fought in World War II is their ability to to separate uh, the battles the hard fought battles of, of politics and still have a different kind of relationship here's what George McGovern had to say about President Nixon um, let's. Uh, I just want to talk briefly about uh, President Nixon's, the domestic side of President Nixon's first term. Um, what role did you play in some of the um, in some of the legislative achievements that extended the Great Society in the first term of Richard Nixon's mm-hmm. presidency? Well, Nixon was very strong in one area that I was interested in, and that uh, was on the uh, national nutritional situation. He always understood the purposes of food stamps and the school lunch program and the WIC program. And uh, when Bob Dole and I would send down these bipartisan measures to expand those programs, President Nixon signed them into law without batting an eye. He even convened a national conference on food and uh, nutrition. It was very well attended, had a big impact on national policy, had a big impact on the House and Senate. So in that area, uh, I couldn't fault Nixon at all. He was uh, aware of the importance of those programs, and he did nothing to, to restrict them in, in any way. Now, later on, Reagan did. Reagan cut the food stamp program. He uh, did various other things that weakened our nutritional position. Uh, But in those areas where I was especially interested, uh, President Nixon was pretty good. I thought he was good on agricultural 
policy. Not 100%, but, but reasonably good. I thought he was pretty good on civil rights. Um, and of course, later on, when he uh, opened the door to China, I thought that was a major move that no democratic president had had the wit or the imagination to do. So um, I uh, uh, I thought in, in a number of areas Nixon was pretty good, especially on domestic policy, and then later on these visionary foreign policy moves. Final question. You decided to come to Pat Nixon and President Nixon's funerals. How did you come to make that decision? Well, um, I, I decided it was the proper thing to do. Uh, president Nixon had been president of the United States. He had been my opponent. And um, I thought that it would be a good show of uh, um, dedication to the enduring ideals of the country for me to recognize the high office that he had held, to uh, recognize that campaigns can't go on forever. There comes a time when you have to work together to advance the countries in ways other than campaigning. And uh, so that's on, it was on that basis that I went first to Pat Nixon's uh, funeral, and then months later to President uh, Nixon. I've, I've never had any regrets about that. And I want to finish this before we get to the election with one last story about uh, President Nixon, who is always painted as this horrible human being who does all this mean stuff to the Democrats and, you know, you wallow in Watergate and all that. But I have not been able to find out what actually happened to Mrs. McGovern. But she was in the hospital in the, in the middle of October of the election year. Uh, and President Nixon called a doctor that was working on the federal government, Dr. Walter Tatch, and had this conversation uh, about George McGovern's wife. Walter, on a purely uh, completely off-the-record basis, do it discreetly, uh, you check with, uh, to see uh, if you can, uh, as a doctor, uh, through your medical
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.